If you are my vintage, you probably um, remember the long hash chorus. Any of you remember that? This was part of that, and when you ended that, you went on and said, and that's enough to make me sing. Did you feel like doing that? Uh, you kids, you don't know what we're talking about. But when we were your age, that was one of the praise songs, I guess, or choruses, we called them. But we have reason to sing. God is good. God is gracious. And he wants to revive us today. We turn to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm going to read part of that chapter this morning, beginning at verse 1. A revival at the Watergate, Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the Watergate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square which is in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood various uh, men with difficult names. Uh, Verse 5. I was going to ask Lee Hoops to read them for me, but I decided not. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then a group of Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, And the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared for this day is holy to the Lord our God. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. That's pause. Father, thank you for your word, your powerful word, your life-giving word. Word that reveals to us our need for a Savior and a word that points us to Jesus who gives us joy, the joy of forgiveness, the joy of his presence in our lives. Oh God, would you do something in each of our hearts here this morning through your word? Revive us, we pray, for the glory and the praise of Jesus' name, for we ask in his name. Amen. When I say the word 
Watergate. What comes to your mind? If you are in my age bracket or older, I'm pretty sure that you're thinking not about a place where you get water. All right? You're probably thinking of something that happened back in the 1970s in our country. The Watergate scandal occurred when men closely connected with the Nixon administration were arrested for breaking into the Democratic Party's national headquarters at the Watergate complex in Washington, D.C. Maybe you young people read about that in your history books. I was there. Not there, but I was alive at that time. I didn't break into the Democratic headquarters. (laughs) It was a painful time for our country. In fact, it led to the resignation of our president, President Nixon. There was a man who lived during that time. His name was Chuck Colson. And he was known as Nixon's hatchet man. Uh, He had the role of just uh, whacking away. And he was given a book by someone. A book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. And Chuck Colson, in that painful time in his life, in a painful time in the life of our country, he was born again. He came to know the Lord as his Savior, went to prison, started prison fellowship. Uh, God used uh, Chuck Colson in a, a really a wonderful way. He's now with the Lord. But it was during a very painful experience that he came to know Jesus as his Savior. We look this morning at another Watergate and a Watergate experience that, that was in some ways uh, painful. People were weeping before God as, as the Word of God was proclaimed. But through His Word, uh, God brought about really a, a great revival of that day, that week. And a revival came to an entire city. And we get the impression that when it says all the people were gathered, that this was a a a large group of people that heard the Word of God and their their lives were were changed. And so we look at the revival at the Watergate this morning from Nehemiah chapter 8. I want to give you three signs of revival. How do we know when revival has come? First of all, revival has come when the people of God, and remember revival is for the people of God. Revival is not for the unsaved because they don't have life. Revival is for the people of God who have life but need to be revived. So revival has come when the people of God hunger for the Word of God. The rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem is really quite a fascinating thing if you study about it. It was completed on the 25th day of the sixth month, 52 days. Can you imagine putting up a wall around a city at that time in history in 52 days? And here's what Nehemiah 6, 16 says. When all our enemies heard of it, that this had been built in 52 days, and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence. For they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of God. It was so obvious that this was not done in any human wisdom or human strength 
God was working in a mighty way to see that wall go up in 52 days. Now, I'd call that a miracle, a marvelous work of God. But just a few days after that, on the first day of the seventh month, God did something in my mind that was greater. God gave the people of Jerusalem an amazing hunger for His Word. That's the work of God. Verse 1, And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And notice, they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Now, we know that in every stage of history, there's always been a few people who hunger for the Word of God. Even in the darkest times, God has a remnant, right? You read through Scripture and you see that there's always a few people that love the Lord, love His Word, and are living in a revived state. Here, however, it was much different than that. It wasn't just a few people who gathered that day. Verse 1 says, all the people assembled as one man. There was a huge group of people united together to hear the word. And it wasn't because Ezra commanded them or Ezra shamed them that they didn't come. Hardly. This was initiated by the people. They asked Ezra, bring out the word of God. We want to hear the word. Isn't that a wonderful thing? When the people of God say, give us the word. We want the word. Not the the pastor or the priest, whatever, saying, you really need this. You better come. But the people saying, give it to us. We want to hear the Word of God. And it's obvious that they weren't just going through the motions when they asked Ezra to preach. He was pretty long-winded, wasn't he? Did you notice that? He was long-winded. And if the people had been there just to go through the motions, they would have been a little bit irritated with Ezra because he preached from, read from the Scriptures from daybreak until noon. What if I did that? What if you came to this 9 o'clock service and you thought it was going to be less than an hour and it ended up being till 2 o'clock? What would you do? That's a biblical pattern. Would you have a problem with that, huh? (laughs) And nobody was irritated, didn't bother the people. In fact, verse 3 says, He read from it before the square, which is in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now that's a miracle, right? I get to see what goes on during services, and I'm not sure that all the people are attentive to the Word when I'm preaching. Most of you are, but there's some that are getting a little tired and can look at their watch. Not here. They were all attentive. I would say that's a sign of revival because when people hunger for the Word of God, God is working. God is giving that hunger. So I want to ask you this morning, do you hunger for the Word? 
Do you have that insatiable desire to spend time with the Lord in His Word like Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to what He has to say? That's a sign of revival. I look back to the late 70s in our church. I've mentioned this to you before, but I'll tell you what, there was a hunger amongst the youth of our church in particular for the Word of God. They came out on, Wednesday, or on Tuesday night Bible study all we did was sing a few songs and have a Bible study, and they just ate it up. We had Sunday evening services. The first three or four pews were filled with young people. And when it was time for testimonies, it was teenagers standing up one after another, sharing what God had been doing in their life, because there was a hunger for the Word of God. I hope you have that hunger. I hope like newborn babes, right? Peter describes like newborn babies long for the milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. When people hunger for the Word, that's, that's a sign that God is, is moving in a special way. That, that's a sign of, of revival. God's work in the hearts of people. The second sign we note here, revival has come when the people of God not only hunger for the Word of God, but they honor, they honor the Word of God. Verse 4 says, Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium that they had made for the purpose. And beside him were these men mentioned in verse 4. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now, Nehemiah tells us in verse 4 that Ezra stood at a wooden platform which they had made for the purpose. I don't know if you know that, but this is a wooden platform. It's covered with, with carpet, but a wooden platform was, was made. And that was necessary because if he was going to be seen and heard in the midst of a throng like this, especially if he wasn't very tall, he needed to be up high enough so they could hear him as he, as he read. It must have been a large crowd. There weren't microphones in, in those days. But I believe there's also some symbolical significance to this. The platform was their way of saying that God's Word was above them. That God's Word was being exalted. It was their way of saying that the Word was their final authority over them. And they were bowing faces to the ground, humbling themselves under the authority of God's Word. We might not necessarily fall on our faces to the ground when God's Word is read or preached. I don't think I've seen that happen here. Maybe it does in, in some places. But we ought to be bowing before the authority of God's Word in our hearts, shouldn't we? Recognizing that when the Word of God is preached, we stand under the authority of that Word, right? And we ought to come on Sundays, we ought to open our Bibles during the week with that attitude of heart that we are under the authority of the Word of God. And what the Word of God says, that's the final answer. 
Right? Sometimes you hear people say, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Eldon Nelson told me one time, he says, God said it. That settles it. Whether we believe it or not, that settles it. If God said it, that settles it. And we stand then, fall before Him under that authority. Along with Ezra, there were several Levites present that day. Thirteen are listed by name in verse 7. And these men had a pretty important role there that day. Verse 7 says, The Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Now, when I've taught expository preaching classes at Bible school and seminary, this is a key verse, isn't it? This is describing what expository preaching is. You start with the text, right? They first read, then they translated, giving the sense so they understood. And when you understand, then you can apply that. Now, if you think about it, there was, there was a great need for the Levites because this took place shortly after the Babylonian captivity, which was how many years? Seventy years. So, the people that came back, some of them had never been in Israel. They had grown up in Babylon. And the ones who were still alive to have lived through that, they had been gone from their homeland for a long time. So, some of the people had never known any Hebrew. Others had likely lost some of their ability to speak Hebrew. If you speak another language and you're in another country for 70 years, you probably lose a little bit of your ability to understand that. Uh, Chuck Swindoll says they heard a Hebrew Bible through Babylonian ears. And so there was need for these Levites to offer some translation, offer some teaching so that what was read was actually comprehended, actually understood. And really, this is the challenge that preachers and teachers face, isn't it, in in some sense, when when we are uh, taking a passage of Scripture and, and seeking to apply it, because we live a long time after the Scriptures were given. We live in a culture that's much different than uh, the culture was when the Old Testament and New Testament was given. Most people don't have understanding of Greek and Hebrew. And so our calling as preachers and teachers is really quite similar to the Levites. We are to read, to explain to give the sense to help people understand how the Word of God applies to their lives. And sometimes that's not uh, an easy task. But you know what? Ezra was well prepared for this. If you go to the book of Ezra, chapter 7, verse 10, here's what it says about him. Ezra 7:10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it 
and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Did you get the progression there? That is significant. The preparation began in his heart. He set his heart. It was seen in his life then because it wasn't just, you know, gathering knowledge in his head, but lived out and then he taught. So he was well prepared for this task because his heart was in tune with the Word and his life was was reflecting that. Well prepared to teach the people who were hungry for God's Word. Now, this does not mean that the Word of God cannot be understood apart from a preacher or a teacher. We would never say that. We are all called to be students of the Word, right? We are all called to to pattern our lives after Ezra, setting our heart to study and practice and then teach. But God has given to His church those who are gifted in, in, in teaching and proclaiming the Word of God. And we can be grateful for that. When you sit under someone who, who just opens the Word to you, isn't that a, just a, like those two on the road to Emmaus? Remember when Jesus opened the Scriptures to them, it says their hearts were just burning within them. There's something about that when you, when you hear a good sermon, it's like, oh, thank you, Jesus. So God has given the Ezra's and the others... But we don't have to have a go-between. We don't have to have a priest, a priest or a pastor. But there's a blessing in that. And so here was Ezra. Here were these Levites, the people that were hungering for the Word, the people that were honoring the Word of God. They were just soaking it up. And he was giving it up. Those of you who do any preaching and teaching, isn't it a joy to share when you know that people are just with you? It's like delivering a baby when people are not. It's just like, oh man, I just feel like the, the words are bouncing back at you and people are yawning and looking at their watch and wondering, when is this going to be over? But when people are hungering for the Word, it's a joy to share. And that's the work of God. That's the work of God. So there was a hungering for the Word. Honoring the Word. And if that's your experience today... That's a sign that God is working in your life and and you're going to be changed. You will be changed. And that's the third thing we see. Revival has come when the people of God respond. Respond to the Word of God. It's obvious that the people in Jerusalem took the message seriously because it had a deep impact on their lives. One way is seen in how it, it, it moved them in such a way that they were weeping. Look at verse 9. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. When's the last time you wept hearing the word of God? Where God spoke to you, God challenged you, God convicted you in such a way that you were moved, stirred. These people were. And if you wonder what was it from God's law that caused them to weep, the book of Malachi may give us some hints. Homer Haley says that the content of the prophecy of Malachi 
fits well into the conditions described by Nehemiah. So I was reading a little bit in Malachi. What, what was it that Malachi had to say to the people? Well, he, had, he addressed several things. One of the things he says is, you know, you people, when you offer sacrifices, you bring the blind, you bring the lame, you bring the stolen animals, and you offer that on my altar? Do you think that pleases me? He said, try giving those to the governor. What would he say? Malachi 1.10 says, Oh, that there were among you one who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. Why did they give him those animals? Because they, there was no use to them. No use to them. Just give them, give them to God then. What an affront to the holy, awesome character of God. Here's the leftovers of my life. Lord, that ought to count for something. huh? The Lord says, really? You really think that? Malachi confronts them about what was happening in their homes. Husbands were tearing their homes apart by divorcing their wives to marry uh, women who worship false gods. That's where we find that passage where the Lord says, I I hate that. I hate that. He also says that the people of Israel were serving the Lord for what they could get from Him in return. Malachi 3 verse 14 says, You have said, It is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept His charge? God, you're not doing anything for us. Here, we're doing stuff for you. Why don't you do something for us? Is that worship? Those were some of the things that were happening in Nehemiah's day. You wonder if those were some of the things that the people were confronted with and brought them to their knees in tears, weeping before God. The law of God had brought sorrow, right? That's one of the functions of the law, to convict of sin, to bring sorrow, genuine sorrow. What these people experienced that day in Jerusalem seems to be, at least in our day, somewhat of an uncommon thing. Sorrow over sin isn't in style today. Did you know that? The preaching of the law is labeled as negative, judgmental. And people are being asked to come to Jesus not knowing why they need Him. That's what the law does. The law shows us why we need a Savior. And if people don't know why they need a Savior, it's no wonder they don't come to Jesus. But when you realize how much you need a Savior, then the Gospel becomes sweet. Doesn't it? It sure does. Glenn Johnson in his book on Nehemiah says, to preach only God's love And fail to warn of God's holiness is to preach half a gospel. He's using the word gospel in a a wide sense. He says, much evangelism is directed to the psychological needs of man. Accept Christ and you'll feel fulfilled. You'll be happy. You will belong and you won't be lonely. He said, we fail to show modern man that the reason he is estranged 
psychologically and socially is that he is morally and legally cut off from his Creator. I'd say amen. And without the law of God, why would people need a Savior? So sin was confronted and sin brought great sorrow. Now when Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites saw the people weeping, they knew. (laughs) They knew God was working here. They knew that God's law had done its work of producing sorrow over sin. Their hearts were now prepared for the good news, right? And that's exactly what they did. Verse 9. They said, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's gospel, right? That's gospel. How many times did Jesus say, Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. And that's what, we're, what they told these people who were weeping over their sins. The gospel was precious. It's, it's pictured as, as, as eating the fat and, and drinking the sweet and, and celebrating. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Don't be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival. And notice why. Because they understood the words which had been made known to them. There was joy in the camp, right? Remember that song? Oh, there's joy in the camp. A sinner has come home. There's joy in the camp, rejoicing round the throne. There was joy there. And the joy of forgiveness, the joy of the gospel, that's what gives strength, doesn't it? The good news of salvation. Now, they had heard the preaching of the Word from daybreak until noon that day. Think that was enough for the week? Wow, that's like six weeks. We've had enough for a while. We're so full that... We're ready to give a spiritual burp, right? We've been listening for six hours, right? But notice what happened. They wanted to hear more. Verse 13, Then on the second day, and here's something significant, the heads of fathers' households, of all the people, the dads, (laughs) the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They had heard that message on that first day and they said, we need more. We need to understand more. Uh, Teach us. And verse 14 says, they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, Go out to the hills, bring olive branches, wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, branches of other leafy trees to make booths 
as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate, the square of the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly, notice that, of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day. It's a long time. And there was great rejoicing. He read from the book of the law of God daily from the first day to the last. And they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. So what were they doing with these little booths? Building little huts. Kind of reminds you of of moms and dads who don't really like to do uh, uh, camping. So let's just build a little tent in the living room or let's put a tent in the backyard and... We'll go out the door and go camping, and then in the middle of the night when you've got to go potty, everybody go back in the house. Okay, So what were these booths? Well, this was the, called the Feast of Booths, celebrated for seven days. It was an annual reminder of God's protection and God's provision when He led them through the wilderness for those 40 years, out of Egypt to the land of Canaan. Led them through a a dangerous desert, but through it all, God brought them to the land and they were to remember, be reminded of what God had done for them. Raymond Brown said, amid the pressure of new challenges, it was all too easy to forget what God had already done for them. Not just in the wilderness, but since they had settled in their own country, I love how he puts it. He said, sovereignly he guided them. Generously he fed them. And powerfully he protected them. Such abundant and evident mercy must never be forgotten. It is easy to forget, isn't it? And that's why we have the Lord's Supper, right? as a constant reminder of what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's why there were these feasts and celebrations in the Old Testament to remember what God had done. And that's what they celebrated that day. You see from the text how how wonderful it is to hear the Word of God? There was joy. Joy in the camp. God was doing a, a wonderful work of revival. There is great blessing when hunger and We hunger and honor and respond to God's Word. So where does it all begin? Can we produce revival? Is there a formula that we can follow? Here's the five steps to revival. And if you just do this and this and this and this and this, you'll make it happen. Like Nike, just do it, right? We'll just do it. As if we can produce revival. I think Scripture is very clear. Revival is the work of God. God sends seasons of refreshing. God sends revival. So we can't produce it. There's not some kind of a, a formula that we can follow. But if revival comes from God, and if it's accomplished through His Word, then then maybe a good place to begin is to get on our knees and say, Lord, give me a hunger for Your Word. 
Give me a hunger for your word. What would happen if we all prayed that for a month? Every day, God, give me a hunger for your word. You think God would do that? No, no, I don't want you to hunger my word. That's not my will. Of course it's his will. When we hunger for the word of God, that word, that word is powerful. That word gives life, nourishes life, sustains spiritual life. Are you willing to pray, Lord, give me a hunger. Give me an insatiable hunger for your word. Do you remember what it was like when you first came to Jesus? A hunger, like a newborn babe, desiring that pure milk of the word. Do you still have that hunger? I remember meeting a lady we knew many, many years ago. Hadn't seen her for years. And I asked her, I said, Marie, how's it it with you and the Lord? And she paused and put her head down and she said, it ain't what it used to be. Is that your experience today? It ain't what it used to be? If it is, then you need revival. You need revival. And I would encourage you to say, Lord, revive me, renew me, give me that hunger for your word. Help me to bow under the authority of your word. And then when your word, the gospel, has, has brought that joy of forgiveness, Lord, give me the strength to say, Lord, I, I, I want to follow you. I, I apply this word to my, to my life. Revival at the water gate. This was a great move of God. And I pray that God would give to us that same uh, uh, hunger for the word. Honoring the word. Responding to the word. That's a sign. Those are signs that God is bringing about revival. May that be true in our lives, in our congregation, that God would truly revive us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you did in that city, the city of Jerusalem, many years ago. People who had come back from captivity were uh, asking for, longing for uh, Ezra and others to give them the word, and they gave them that word. They they translated, giving the sense so that people could understand. And lives were transformed in a, a marvelous way. So, Father, do your work in our lives and through us, we pray, through the power of your Spirit, working through your word. In Jesus' name we pray.